Welcome back to the K-12-ish podcast, everyone. I'm Anna, and today I'm joined by the CEO and founder at K-20 Educators, whose mission is to dismantle global silos in education. I am so excited to have her here. So without further ado, we have Vriti Saraf with us today. Hi, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, I mean, I was wondering if you could just tell the listeners a bit about yourself and your background. I know, obviously, you founded K20 Educators. You guys are running virtual conferences. But before that, you were you worked within education. You traveled the world. And so, yeah, please just tell us a bit about you. Sure. I spent uh, the last 12 years in education by way of Teach for America. And uh, I was a kindergarten teacher for a bit. I was a dean for a bit at uh, charter schools. And then uh, we scaled from two charter schools to 12 charter schools. So I was training deans on how to be deans. And that's really where I first learned about how to uh, provide professional learning to, to educators and to, um, to school administrators. And then for the last three and a half years, I had this amazing opportunity to travel around the world building schools. Uh, we built one in Shenzhen and one in D.C. And I was the global director for professional development, so I was creating the infrastructure for how our teachers and our school admin uh, were developed professionally and how they supported each other. And I was also uh, helping our school principals put up the schools uh, in those different cities. And um, part of the job, which uh, was kind of a miraculous thing, is that I got to just visit different schools around the world that were doing really cool things and learn from them. And so that's really where uh, this entire idea came from. Amazing. So I have to ask, where was your favorite place to visit? So in terms of school to visit, uh, the, the school that blew my mind completely was the Green School in Bali. Uh, they started off as a home campus in, in Bali, but now they actually have branched out to New Zealand and South Africa and I believe Tulum. But um, that school, if you guys haven't checked it out, it's it's the most phenomenal place I've ever been because they live and breathe their mission, which is to um, to enable sustainable practices and learning uh, within their school community and to uh, allow students to really express themselves through the lens of sustainability. And um, the thing that I'm not going to focus too much on this, but the thing that totally blew my mind about that school was not only were they uh, creating really innovative pedagogy uh, and instructional practices to support students, they really lived and breathed their mission. So one of their, um, so they have this after-school program, and it's open to the Balinese kids. Um, and you know, there wasn't a huge amount of um, of affordability uh, in terms of like after-school programs there. So uh, the fee that they accepted from Balinese kids to partake in this really fantastic program was uh, related to their recycling facility. So they had the largest recycling facility in Bali. And so the Balinese kids would bring their trash as fee to recycle in their facility. And like, I mean, <laughs> if that doesn't bring chills down your, your back, I don't know what would. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I want to dive into what K-20 Educators is. But before that, it's you obviously, both of us are U.S.-based, right? You worked within the U.S. school system. And so what did this work of traveling and visiting these different schools and getting to see school systems that are unlike anything we have within the United States right now, what did that teach you about education? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I would say two things maybe. One is that uh, 
there are incredible pockets of talent around the world and there are a lot of different innovators around the world. And I think right now it's a really interesting time because there are all of these like gurus and ed tech and, and education that have been around for a long time that are saying, hey, what's the future of learning and how can we innovate and learn in education and how can we change school models? But the reality is that like there are a lot of educators already changing those school model models. There are a lot like incredible innovations that already exist. But the problem is that most people don't know about them. Right. And the problem is that there isn't this sort of exchange of knowledge and there isn't this sort of um, connectivity among these educators. And, and I think that's actually one of the main problems. Um, and then the second thing that I, I've, I think I've learned is um, I when we are thinking about our profession, regardless of what industry is in, we often put on blinders and we actually think the problem is that we have in our classroom, in our school, whatever, is like the only problem that exists. But there are so many levels of, of uh, obstacles and things like that that are not only being experienced, but being um, solved around the world that we could easily learn from as well. So I think it's about sort of like opening up your mind, but then also connecting to everybody that's around us. Which is kind of where K-20 educators comes in, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And and that's where the idea came from, which is, you know, I I was so wonderfully surprised and delighted by the incredible innovation that was everywhere. But the thing that I found, the trend that I found was I would go to one school and they would be doing something really fantastic in, say, experiential and project-based learning. And then I would go to another school in a completely different country or continent that would be doing very similar things, but they had actually come up with it in complete isolation of themselves. So I'd say, hey, do you know about that other school that's doing it? You guys should connect. And they'd be like, we have no idea that other school exists. And so I think it's great that both of those entities were able to develop these innovations um, in isolation, which means that one, there's, you know, really fantastic brilliance everywhere. Two, that they're solving for the same problems. Three, that um, the practices that have emerged must be really good if they've emerged, you know, in completely different contexts, but in the same sort of way. But then four, like, they're reinventing the wheel, right? If they had known about each other, they would have had to do half the work, if not any of the work. Um, and so they would be able to even go even further if they hadn't knew about each other before. And what that would do to a school that they know that this is something they aspire to, they want to do it, but they just don't know how, or they don't think they have the resources to do it. Like it, it gives them direction and, and a vision for what it could look like. So I'm tell me about K-20 educators. I mean, it's, I see a lot of buzz about it online and I've talked to users. I myself have signed up for it, but I would love if you could just like share some more about what it is. Yeah. So K-20 is a social learning network for global educators. And uh, we are hoping that we can connect the brilliance within education so that everyone can learn about best practices together. There are a lot of ed tech companies that are focusing on professional development, that are focusing on uh, enhancing school practices. And I think that's fantastic work. I think even before or maybe even after that happens, there has to be this dialogue that happens between educators. And that dialogue, I think, is what's missing. If you think about conferences, for example, um, that dialogue does happen, but it happens one uh, in affinity groups, right? Because you have the conferences for STEM teachers or you have the conferences for humanities teachers, whatever it is. And so they're happening in these segmented groups. 
Um, they often happen uh, with schools that can afford those conferences. So there are a lot of uh, schools and, and educators that can afford it. So it's the same educators going to these conferences over and over again. Um, and then they also happen uh, sort of in um, in specific instances. So, you know, once a conference happens, probably 90 to 80 to 90% of those conference goers do not continue that practice or continue those uh, connections after the conference. And so, um, and, and you can say the, the same thing about professional development organizations. You can say the same thing about uh, PD opportunities. You can say the same thing about even Facebook or LinkedIn or, or any of these where, you know, you're, you're connecting in a very vertical way and there isn't sort of this ongoing consistent dialogue that's happening in, in many dynamic ways. And so what we're trying to do is shift that. We're trying to have that sort of social learning where you have the platform and you can engage with each other in really bespoke ways. And the platform that we're um, using right now is an alpha version. The beta version that we're building is going to have like these really cool algorithms that empower educators to connect with each other in meaningful ways. For example, if you know, you're an educator and your learning goal is to get really good at project-based learning, then the platform will actually recommend five other educators from across the world that also want to do that. And you guys can actually start having a conversation about it, right? Um, so we're doing that, but we're also um, simultaneously hosting events that are um, allowing educators to connect across the world in a, in a meaningful way. So we've got socials in our city of learning. Um, we've got uh, masterminds. These masterminds are really cool, actually. Um, a bunch of different educators have started reaching out to me being like, hey, you know, what you're doing is cool. Can I help? And I'm like, of course you can. And so they're, whatever they're interested in, they'll start a mastermind on. And the mastermind um, is basically a Skillshare event. So we've got this one educator from Kodiak, Alaska, and another one from Edinburgh, Scotland, never knew each other. They met um, through the City of Learning and they're both AR, VR aficionados. And they have these masterminds every month on AR, VR for educators. And it's mind blowing the kind of things that they're doing. They're taking um, they're taking students trips, uh, like virtual field trips to Rome. They're taking, um, you know, painting classes in a, inside of a Van Gogh painting where you, you can actually walk around and painting. They're taking like trips to Mars. Like they're, they're doing incredible things and for free, and at very little sort of heavy lifting for the educator, which is what they're trying to sort of enable with other educators. We're also starting one on podcasting, actually. You might be interested in this. Podcasting for educators, yeah. Um, and again, another educator in our community that was like, hey, can I help? And I was like, of course, what do you do? Um, and then we're doing one on uh, personalized education, one on maker spaces, and, and lots more to come. Wow. And I just love that example because Scotland to Alaska, they would have probably never connected because you don't even go to the same conferences in that case for except for now the city of learning which is online and so i'm so inspired by the work that you're doing because i've done research on professional development in the past and one of the biggest complaints i've heard time and time again is that it happens one time right like you're starting out the school year you go to these like three day long pds that you're so exhausted for that at the end you're not taking in any information it's on topics that may or may not be of interest to you sometimes provided by an ed tech company that's only really, and I says as an ed tech person, only really interested in getting you to use their products. So it's, this is, it's PD that is not product specific and it is ongoing, that it doesn't just have to be a one and done, right? That teachers can continue to come back and engage and build up these like kind of like PLCs, but across countries and, and without borders, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And 
I think one of the main differences is uh, that we're actually treating educators as startup founders of their own like classroom startups. And, and I'm, I'm sort of taking that from my own experience. You know, I've been part of these accelerator programs um, that allow me to create these really robust communities. And so I'm basically applying those concepts to educators. So the masterminds um, are these Skillshare events, but we also have think tanks. We have sprints. We have socials. We have all of these things that are um, putting the complete power of learning and of teaching in the hands of educators. And that's not to say that, you know, more um, pedagogically expert or framework expert or ed tech expert, you know, uh, facilitators aren't invited to the conversation. They 100% are and they're welcome to facilitate events as well. But uh, that ongoing cons- consistency, I think, it, which, we, which you mentioned is the most important part. Um, so if we can continue that conversation across various uh, events uh, that are facilitated by educators themselves, that allows us to, number one, as you said, um, impact practice in a really um, substantive and robust way. But then two, it also, uh, it allows the educators to, so you know that um, that saying, like, you know, in the best way to, to learn something is to teach it. It's the same thing, right? So if educators are teaching each other about practices and they're learning from each other, they're going to much more trust the practices that they're learning from other educators than the practices that an ed tech company might come in with. Right. Yeah. And it's, I think about it too, and it's, it's putting educators in the driver's seat of education, which shockingly hasn't happened. Like it's, it's dictated by ed tech companies. It's dictated by governments. It's dictated by everyone outside of the classroom, except the people who are there who are leading it. So for the first time, it's, putting them in positions of power as well. Yeah. Part of the reason for that, Anna, you probably know better than anyone is, you know, the, the power goes where the money is, right? And the money is usually held with districts and with schools and with ed tech. Ed tech is what, a $78 billion industry. And so uh, the first thing that I thought of when I was starting this was how do I, how do I not worry about that and put the sort of onus on educators um, and allow them to actually proliferate the ideas that they so innovatively have. Um, and I think that shift in the community power is actually a not just a, an industry shift in, in, ed, in education, but it's actually a cross-industry shift. So I don't know um, if you're familiar with the vertical uh, social learning communities that are going up all over the place, but in 2018, Facebook lost 2 million people to vertical communities like Behance and uh, Substack and um, Doximity and all of these other ones that are for other industries. And it's really about putting the power back into the community's hands. And that's was another question I had was Facebook exists, Instagram exists, Twitter exists, TikTok now exists. But what has this work taught you about why we need to rethink what those online public spaces look like and maybe not just try to work with them, but to rebuild? Yeah. So uh, those uh, those spaces were fantastic for when they started off because they allowed globally for us to connect in a way that we never had before. Now there's a, a further shift into this uh, unbundling and rebundling of curated resources. And so what people want right now within their education, within their sort of sector, whatever industry it is, is special, specialization of content. 
And so uh, it's not going to Facebook or going to LinkedIn and finding generalized content is feeling like not the best use of time anymore because there's so much available on the internet that it's a little bit superfluous to have to engage in all of it. And so instead, these vertical communities are really allowing people to to focus in on what they need right at the moment. And so when we think about public learning spaces or public social spaces, um, we want to think about how do we how do we get the value that we need um, as quickly as we need it? Um, how do we create spe- specialization so that um, folks are being able to sort of uh, level up their uh, expertise and their their skill levels um, by just being part of a community? But then there's two other things. Um, one is how do we create deeper community roots, right? How do we create deeper con- community connections and relationships? That's never been done before because we didn't have access to the internet of things as prevalently as we do now. And so because everybody has access to each other globally and because, honestly, because the pandemic brought so many people online, we have this uh, this really unique um, unique uh, chance to connect people in, in ways that are meaningful and not just sort of superficial. And then the, the fourth thing is just, I, I think that a lot of these early on networks have taken advantage of uh, users and by way of, you know, acquiring the data and ads and solicitation and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we are in a place where uh, there's so much knowledge and there are so many products out there that users no longer have to be inundated with those things to derive value out of a platform. You know, like we, we have a choice now. I think in the time of when, you know, Facebook was the only sort of largest network, like we didn't have a choice, but now we have a choice. And so we don't need to face that anymore. Exactly. And so as we think about these online communities, not only are you reinventing that, but you're also reinventing events. We were just talking about it. You have the think tanks and mastermind groups, but you also have the like big conferences you're putting on, like the city of learning. So what made the, I guess, rewind when everything closed down, right? There was all these conferences were like, oh, we're just going to do it online, right? And it was just Zooms, which was not engaging. And everyone was like, oh, I, I don't like online events. But the feedback from the city of learning that I saw online was fantastic. So people loved it. So what made this different from other online events? And, and what was the thinking that went into building this experience? Uh, so what's funny about this, I was uh, reflecting on this right before this call, and I started reflecting on the, all the no's that I got when I started proposing the idea of the city of learning for, uh, to people. And I got so many no's from ed tech folks, from gurus in education, from, um, from uh, publications, like major ed tech uh, education publications. And I think the reason that they were all saying no's was because they, um, they couldn't imagine something better than what was. And I couldn't imagine something worse than what was, right? And so um, the, the the way that it emerged was uh, in September, October of 2020, I was at a uh, education conference, one of the sort of larger education conferences out there. And the entire thing was two weeks of back-to-back webinars, right? Pre-recorded. And um, this particular organization has millions of dollars to be able to do something different and innovative, but they chose to do these um, back-to-back conferences and and the tickets were ticketed. They weren't even free. And so I, it it just blew my mind that 
we could have access to so much incredible technology and so much incredible innovation. And yet we're still watching webinars, which is not a human-centered or learner-centered way to, to consume anything, right? And so um, I started thinking about, you know, how, how do we create human-centered engagement and started thinking about the principles that actually allow us to engage in a human-centered way. And so when you think back to conferences, the things that people really appreciate about conferences is that you have agency. You can, you know, go wherever you want. You can choose um, what session you want to go to. You can go to the bar. You can go to your hotel. There's so many things that you can do, right? Um, There's big group experiences and small group experiences. So you feel the energy of everybody, but you can also duck into a small group session. Um, You have accessibility, um, you have uh, content relevancy, you have time with experts. So we thought about all these things. And I realized that, you know, a game like Minesweeper or Fortnite would be perfect in terms of having an educational conference because you get all of those things in there, which is why those video games are so addictive, right? And so I started re- doing research on that and found gather.town, um, which is this avatar-based platform where you can manipulate the entire environment. And so I just went for it. And I was just like, I, I, I don't care who says no to me. I'm going to try something different. And I want to um, show educators that we can have a human-centered experience. And so we put up this program that was um, probably you know a few hours too long, but people actually ended up staying even past that time, which was pretty bonkers to me. Um, and, uh, we, we had, uh, talks, we had, uh, learning labs, we had socials, we had, um, secret sort of rooms. We had, um, these sort of, you know, games and everything was happening at the same time so that people could sort of choose their own adventure. And as you said, um, educators had never experienced anything like it. It was a first gamified conference ever. And um, people lost their stuff, you know, they were, they were like, you know, just going crazy over it and um, in, a, in the most positive way. And um, we were really excited by the momentum and by how much uh, people appreciated it. And the best part of it um, was not just that the experience was fabulous for educators, but after that, at least 100 educators from that conference went back and created the same environment for their classrooms. Like that was the most impactful and interesting part. That's amazing because it, it should. I've, I've always said prof- the professional learning should mimic the type of experiences we're trying to create in the classroom, right? That if we're sitting here saying lectures don't work in the classroom, why are we still doing that in professional learning environments, which a webinar is even worse than a lecture because you can't even see people's faces. So at least in a lecture you're seeing. So it's just like, as you said, you couldn't imagine something worse and you're right. So obviously things are reopening, but I think part of the power of K-20 educators in the city of learning at some of these other conferences you're doing and events is that, as you said, it connected someone from Alaska to Scotland. And so how do you see these evolving as things reopen? Like how will this continue to grow with our current environment? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think there's, uh, in terms of what's about to happen, this is, uh, this is a, uh, you know, hot take that I think is going to happen this year. I think that uh, educators are going to experience a rubber band effect where when school starts again uh, in the, in September, they're going to, and uh, students are going to be super hungry for that in-person engagement. And they're going to uh, veer very far from the virtual environment for the first few months. Once they've sort of gotten that sort of, you know, uh, human engagement back in and the social emotional learning back in, then I think people are going to start remembering 
what power there was in their virtual experiences. And that blended learning model will reemerge around, you know, December, January. And around that time is when I think there are going to be more events that will be both a uh, somewhat in-person, but then a huge factor of that is going to be these um, online events that are happening around the world. And it'll just continue sort of growing the uh, the education community in, in, in a global way. But I think that um, return back to that in-person is going to be necessary for all of us because we're all so hungry to, to see each other again and to hug each other again and all those kind of things. Yeah, it's like human interaction. So, and then, but I do agree there have been, benefits that have come out of this in education and in all parts of our lives, you know, there's obviously a, a lot of pain and suffering that's gone on, but there, there are things that we can continue to take with us. And I, I agree that this sort of the power that these virtual environments give us, we will remember and come back to. And so I wanted to end on this question that I, I've, rem- I've had two conversations with educators that really stand out to me. One was one who this was pre-COVID, she worked at a small school district in Alabama and created a computer science makerspace in her classroom. And all the teachers thought she was crazy at first. And then, you know, two years after starting this, she was now the tech coordinator at the district and traveled around teaching all of those teachers across the district, not just at her school, how to build this too. And she told me that at first the innovation was really lonely because it was just kind of her against the world trying to make this happen. And Then another conversation I just recently had with an educator was about a problem that she had noticed that she knows people are going through. And she she was talking to me about wanting to create some sort of solution for it. And I had suggested a podcast. It seemed like it was a really great way to start having important conversations. And she told me like, I I could never, like I, she's like, I would have to find someone to host with me. What if people say no? And it was all these like, what ifs? And I was like, well, why don't you just create it and get some really cool guests to come on it with you? And, and she's now exploring it and I'm really happy for that. But there's this fear of innovation, I think, because it can be a lonely experience and it can also just be really scary to take that first step. So what advice would you give to other educators to, to embrace innovation? And even though it might be terrifying, even at first or lonely and, and feel like you're not making a difference initially, like what, what advice would you give them? Yeah, this is a tough one because there are so many circumstances that uh, that align to this. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll tell you the advice, but I'm also going to give you a caveat. Um, so, the thing that I think that we should think about when we uh, come up with something innovative that we want to implement is um, how much do we actually believe in it? Uh, if we think that it's a really fantastic idea, if we think it's going to do something uh, pretty uh, impactful for educators or for students then you should absolutely go for it. Um, but try to get uh, small pockets of, um, of uh, buy-in. So if you can get you know, one friend or two friends or three friends to, to, to buy into the idea that you're, uh, you're pitching, then that community support is actually going to uh, encourage you to keep going even when it is, uh, when it is lonely. Um, I would also encourage uh, folks like that to join uh, communities that are online right now. So the K-20, for example, um, if that educator were to to join that community, I guarantee you that she could find 50 other educators that would completely sign off on that, right? And so it's not just the K-20 that exists, but there are a bunch of other um, vertical communities that exist that would uh, be helpful there. 
Um, I also want to like really underscore no code tools. Are you familiar with no code? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The low code, so, no code movement. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm part of the no code movement. I'm a woman who no codes. I'm part of the no code fellowship for on deck and um, the no code uh, tools that are out there are really fantastic ways to test out an MVP. And so if uh, you know uh, somebody is really keen to test out an idea, but you don't have the funding or the support or whatever, you can build something in no code really quickly and then just show it to people to, to show them uh, what the great idea is. I think when you're trying to push out an innovation, words sometimes aren't enough. You have to actually show some visuals. So that really helps. Um, but the caveat that I wanted to say is that uh, it, it's okay to be afraid to, to innovate and to not go full speed on it. I think that there's this huge um, pressure in the startup community that says, you know, if you uh, want to be a startup founder, you just should. And if you don't do it, that, that means you never should have been a startup founder. And, I, and I'm not sure that's the best way to look at it because um, I think it's looking at it with great amount of privilege. Not everybody has the funds or the time or the lack, lack of responsibilities to be able to pursue something like that. And so I, I think it's important to recognize that like it's okay not to be the innovator of the world or the, the, the startup founder that, you know, that you could have been like, it's okay to, to like say no to that. And I, and I do want to provide that caveat. Um, cause I think it's important to, to, for people to know. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I, I work within ed tech and it's very much prevalent out there. Like I see that happening and it's like, it doesn't, it's, it, it is a privilege to be able to do it. And at the same time, it's, I think some of the best advice I've gotten on projects that I've talked about is starting small, right? That it doesn't have to be like this company you're envisioning, like this educator I was talking about. It doesn't have to, you know, it's not a company that's going to come from this podcast, right? But it's just an opportunity for her to start having conversations and we'll take it there and and see where, where it goes. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, and, and the reason why the starting small um, it, advice is so prevalent is because it allows you to, to, to test something out and which is why I think the no code tools are, are really good for that. Um, but you know, another, another piece of advice on that, um, try writing a pitch deck, even for, even if you're not trying to sell a company or if you're not trying to create a company, even for a podcast, like try writing what the problem is, what the solution is, um, how you intend to solve the problem, how you think the trajectory will be, where you see yourself in five years, just in a, as an exercise for yourself. And that will actually allow you to uh, create more momentum on your project rather than just sort of thinking about all the no's that you're hearing from other people. I love that because it, it, also gives you the vision of where you want to go because I think like we can get then really stuck in the weeds and it's like we can't see I was talking to someone earlier today about like see the forest through the trees right like you're only seeing trees right now how do we like get beyond that so that's fantastic and so I have really enjoyed this conversation and so obviously k20 educators everyone listening should go join it sign up for it but where else can they find you what what do you guys have coming up what should people be exploring if they're really interested in this uh, so we, uh, aside from K20 Educators, I'm on Twitter if anyone wants to be on that. We're also, uh, we have a club on Clubhouse called uh, Education Innovation. It's the largest education-oriented club on Clubhouse, and we hold talks um, every week. And uh, we are going to start having more masterminds. So if anybody's interested in facilitating those or attending those, welcome to that. But everything's sort of found on K20 Educators, and uh, we really streamline a lot of our com uh, communication from the platform itself. I do have to say it's one of the maybe the only 
clubhouse group that I actually enjoy <laughs> listening into and I get a lot of value from it. So I actually really do highly recommend it to people. Um, it's it's really you. great, the people that you have there. So um, yeah. Well, anyways, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure getting to talk to you. Same, Anna. Thank you so much. Twelve-ish is produced by me, Anna. If you want to show your support for the show, you can head on over to the iTunes feed where you can rate, review, and subscribe, or drop us a follow if you're listening on Spotify. If you want more of my daily EdTech content, you can follow me on LinkedIn.